0: My name is Daisha Clay. I'm the audio librarian here at Classical 91.7. While I'm a real librarian, I have a deep, dark secret. I know very little about classical music. I grew up listening to rock. And I know something about jazz. But when it comes to classical... The thing is, I want to learn. And as it turns out, I work with people who know a lot about classical music. Every week on this show, one of my coworkers will give me a homework assignment, a piece of classical music they think I should know, and then we'll discuss it. Come learn with me in the Classical Classroom. Hi, and welcome to the Classical Classroom. I'm Daisha Clay, and today my teacher will be Classical 91.7 Music Lab intern, composer, Moore School graduate student, percussionist, and sharp-dressed man, Daniel Webbin. Daniel, how's it going?
1: I'm doing very well, thank you.
0: Good. And what are we going to be talking about today? What are you teaching me about?
1: Well, today we're going to be listening to a piece by Steve Reich called Piano Phase, and this is one of the early pieces in what we would call the minimalist movement, which of things that happened in the late 20th century, probably one of the most important things is this idea of using a tiny, tiny amount of material and making a whole lot out of it, which is minimalism. And this is one of the first pieces in that. It's called Piano Phase.
0: Why don't we go ahead and hear a little bit of this piece, and then let's talk about what's happening in it.
1: Sounds good. So, what you're going to hear is two pianos playing the same thing, and one of them will start to speed up ever so slightly so that they're out of phase. And then the resultant pattern is infinitely more complex than the original pattern was, and it constantly will change in cycle. So, you'll start to hear it now. It'll, yeah, you can kind of hear them out of phase right now.
0: Oh yeah, there it is. What I was reading is that they start out playing the same pattern and then one takes out a note. Is that what's happening?
1: Well, not at first. At first, one of them speeds up slightly to where he's playing the same thing offset and they cycle that for a while and then the notes start to change. So, um, But at first, it's just phasing. So they're playing exactly the same thing in just two different tempos.
0: So what do we do with this information, aside from enjoy the really interesting sound that this winds up making? And if you stick with it, because it's an 18-minute piece? Yeah,
1: and well, that's part of it. It's, it's variable. It, depending on if me and you are playing this, how much, how quickly I speed up and phase with you, it could last anywhere from 10, 12 minutes all the way to, to 20 minutes. Um, so it, a lot of it's up to the performer. And um, obviously you can't notate this exactly. You have to just write it out once and say, alright, player two, speed up a little bit. And it's up to the player to do it. Um, yeah, so they phase two or three times now. So now they're offset by a couple of notes.
0: So what's interesting to me about this piece is that it's very different from most music that you listen to. You know, you've got in pop music you've got your your chorus and you've got your, right you know, i right. mean and and this is this is something very different this is like um it reminds me of going to a museum and looking at a piece of art on a it, wall.
1: exactly it's it's definitely well what you're talking about would be structure in a piece a verse a chorus a bridge those are all things that delineate sections and structure in a piece and this has that because he'll do but they're huge sections so he'll do a phase, and then start to take out notes. And that makes a section, but they're not clear-cut dividing mm. lines. They're very broad, very blurry dividing lines. And it's just philosophically, it's it's really different. It's not this kind of Western idea of going somewhere in direction. It's much more of an Eastern sort of philosophy of things being cyclical, us just kind of sitting and enjoying uh, a moment. But maybe more than that, it's what we would call a uh, process music, where we can hear the process unfolding and for Reich that was really important because a lot of modern composers in the 20th century had these complicated processes they had all these mathematic equations to govern their music but they're completely um, invisible to the, the listener or not invisible but you couldn't they're inaudible you couldn't tell what was going on it just sounded like chaos but with this piece you can tell what's going on you can hear the process and that um, is kind of fun if you're a listener because mm-hmm. you're, you're in on the game as it were and it was uh, it was a really big deal at the time because he was throwing a bone to the listeners. It, he was in the downtown New York crowd, mm-hmm. and the uptown guys in Columbia were writing this esoteric stuff that not a lot of people could get to. And Reich said, "No, I want to make classical music that is comprehensible and understandable, and I want my process to be, you know, intrinsic. And the audience needs to know what's going on. That's like part of the fun of the music is knowing mm-hmm. what's going on."
0: Yeah. Yeah, and you can, I mean, you're very much in on the game yeah, as, exactly. as, it's, as it's going. And that's kind of what it reminds me of, is, is a game played with pianos. It's like a sort of...
1: It totally is. It's a parlor trick. Yeah. And uh, you now this piece, since it's his first one, is kind of a proof of concept. Mm-hmm. He had written two pieces that were just electronic pieces. They were on tape. And legend has it, he was just in the studio... And had the same thing playing on a left and right track, but one machine was slightly faster than the other, Uh and it started to pull apart in phase, and he said, hey, I like that sound. So then he made uh, a piece, his first one was called um, Come Out, and then he had another one after that that were both just on tape. And then this was his first piece, he said, I'm going to try to do that with live performers. Mm -hmm. Um, So it it is a little bit of a gimmick. I mean, it's just basically one thing that happens, but... uh, you know, the notes were picked particularly. I mean, if it was random notes, it wouldn't be the same. It's this nice minor key kind of brooding a little bit sound. Um, and he only wrote a couple of pieces like this. He wrote a piece called drumming and a piece called violin phase and maybe one other, I'm not sure. Um, but there's obviously not a lot you can do with it. He sort of exhausted his possibilities. Um, but yeah, like you said, as a, as a game is a good way to describe it. When you play it, it feels like that. It feels like you're not so much a musician as you are kind of a, like a circus performer. You're trying to just (laughs) creep slowly ahead. I've played his piece drumming, which is the same kind of idea, but all in bongos. Mm -hmm. Um, and actually played that when I was doing my undergrad at Baylor and he was there for the concert and was standing right over my shoulder when we did it. Wow. It was, I actually dropped my stick in the rehearsal and it was terrifying because we are in a section like this where there's no beat and you can't tell where you are and I didn't get back in at the right time and um oh. but uh it's it's fun music to play it's a completely different way of thinking about music and that was something that he was very into was you know how do people in other parts of the world think about music how do they think about music in Ghana how do they think about music in India and a lot of the different non-western countries music is cyclical and it's based on rhythmic patterns and not you know, maybe melodic ideas so much. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, completely different approach is, is is what's going on here.
0: Yeah. It it's a little crazy making when it, you first listen to it. It's a little it. neurotic, yeah. Yeah. But then if you sort of settle into it, it becomes really hypnotic.
1: Exactly. It's it's like meditative, yeah. I kind of think about uh-huh. it. Um And yeah, Philip Glass is probably the most popular minimalist. Um, Mm. He had a lot of success in operas and everything. Um, And then there's uh, John Adams is another composer that is in the minimalist genre that has a Houston connection because the Houston Grand Opera premiered John Adams' major opera, Nixon in China, which doesn't involve phasing, but a lot of the patterns that result from Steve Reich's phasing, a lot of these interlocking notes um john adams would use those textures all the time these just constant rhythm and you don't know where the you don't know where the beat is but you can still feel a pulse mm-hmm. um those are all kind of markers of, of minimalism that a lot was pioneered with this piece by Reich. Hm. so See, now sounds- you're hearing a, a shorter pattern it was an eight note pattern and now it shrunk down to like a five note pattern that's repeating
0: sounds completely different
1: yeah it's crazy actually in um this is played with two pianos in 2004 or 5 i think someone i want to say a student at juilliard did this by himself on a recital he had a piano bench and then two grand pianos kind of in a v and played one with each hand you can find it on youtube it's crazy and reich was at the performance and um I mean, the guy's just sweating bullets the whole time trying to speed up one hand and not the other And you know at that point maybe it becomes a parlor trick but that's kind of the cool thing is that even though it's a trick like what happens what the sound is is still pretty cool
0: What do you think differentiates real music from as you said, a parlor, parlor trick like what what is it that distinguishes this piece from just being something nifty? To listen to
1: um that's a it's a, a great point and I would say s- part of me wants to say that it's the same idea of in art like how come that guy can glue a toilet to the wall and it's like well <laughs> like I could have thought of that it's like yeah well you didn't you mm-hmm. know and part of me thinks maybe there's a little bit of that um But having met Steve Reich and played his music, and he has lots of other music that isn't like this, I I think there is a a sensibility, there's a taste to it. It, It's long, but it's not too long, and it it still has sections. So there's enough craft and musical composition, there's just enough to keep our interest, Mm -hmm. that it, it transcends from, like you said, being a fun trick. To being a real piece of music, mm-hmm. um, I think it could have easily not have crossed over that line and just have been a fun trick. And I'm sure there's been a thousand imitators that were on the wrong side of that line. Um, right. But I, I think it's just enough musical things and just enough changes to keep our interest is what makes it really a piece of music and mm-hmm. not um not something else.
0: Yeah. Now it's very sparse.
1: Yeah. So the the pattern is shrunk. We're only hearing five or six note pattern instead of the full long pattern here.
0: What I kept thinking about while I was listening to this piece is how exhausting it must be to play just physically. Totally,
1: totally. That's one of the ironies about the minimalist movement is that to the listener, if you're in the right mindset, it can be like rain on a window. It can be super relaxing. But for the performer, it is a marathon to play. John Adams, who I mentioned earlier, the opera composer, has a piece called Phrygian Gates, which is maybe half an hour of just solid da 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 for the pianist, and you never get a break. And there's horror stories of pianists getting carpal tunnel syndrome and stuff. So um, that might be part of the reason why it's so accessible for performers, because it's you know it's a challenge. You have to kind of step up to the plate and really put your best foot forward. Um, to make it through one of these.
0: Do you think that the minimalists maybe just hate musicians and they've written these pieces to to, to, to torture them, to challenge them to the point of torture? I think
1: some of them maybe. Steve Reich played a lot of his own stuff, and a lot of the guys, Steve Reich and Philip Glass, they formed bands, and it was them and their handpicked musicians that traveled around playing this stuff. Partly because I think you're right, that it's so difficult. You have to devote quite a bit of time to do it you can't just sight read it because you probably don't learn the skill of speeding up by one percent of your tempo you Mm -hmm. don't learn that in the average conservatory so you have to devote time to developing the techniques and the stamina to play this stuff yeah so um i don't think they hated their musicians but they definitely knew it was difficult enough that they put their own bands together and -hmm. went on the road and did this stuff and it's actually become co-opted by a lot of the avant-garde rock guys in the 70s, John Zorn and those sort of characters, mm. they would play stuff similar to this. It was yeah. just brutal. Yeah.
0: There's a part in here where it really reminded me of a Who song. There's a keyboard bit at the beginning Something of one Tommy. of their songs. Yeah. And uh, sounds just like this piece. Yeah.
1: All all of the avant-garde rock artists were very very hip to what what. Um, the downtown guys in New York were doing so, Glass and Reich, um, and then if you look more modern um, guys like Sufjan Stevens mm-hmm. uses, I mean verbatim Steve Reich textures. Oh my Reich god, textures. you're right! I yeah, love him. at the yeah. end of his um, Illinois album, it's it sounds exactly like something Steve Reich might have written.
0: Oh my god, I never would have made that connection. Yeah, but so you're there's so a, right. a
1: lot of minimalist stuff that has really bled into pop, which is another reason I think it's such a cool. Um, development in music is it was one of the few times where the pendulum swung back the other way. I mean, composers have been using pop songs and stuff that was, you know, in the oral tradition and folk music as far back as composition goes. You know, I mean, Bronze's academic overture is drinking songs that students were singing. And that was the whole <laughs> joke. It was for a university, but they were just the student drinking songs. And then, but this is the pendulum going the other way. This is a classical composer, Steve Reich, writing music that influences and Stevens and influences The Who and things like that. Yeah, you sort of get lulled into a trance after a while.
0: You really do.
1: Maybe good for relaxing if you're stuck in traffic or something. <laughs> I like to listen to this stuff you know, late at night, if I'm driving or if it's raining. I mean it's totally it's it you know, it kind of is mood music, Mm -hmm. um for me, but not all minimalism is.
0: So tell me what now to our to maybe classical music traditionalists, this music has absolutely nothing to do with with the kind of music that they like. So so what's the tie?
1: Well other than the fact that it's the same twelve pitches, um which is I mean, that's not really saying that much. Um, A lot of modernists before the minimalist movement, they were writing stuff that is in the lineage of Arnold Schoenberg and then Wagner and then going back to Beethoven and Bach. These big, you know, things that went somewhere. They had lots of tension and release. But this music kind of skips all that history and goes back to what was going on before Bach. So the Renaissance era, composers like... Periton and Dufay, um, composers that they weren't concerned with tension and release and things going somewhere. There's all you know. Think Gregorian chant. Mm-hmm. It's just sort of there, and you just sort of sit in it, and it's nice. But there's no direction. Um, it's it has more of a cyclical sort of idea to it. So Steve Reich and, and friends we're going back to kind of pre-Bach, pre-tonal area. Okay. So there's definitely a connection, but it's to stuff 1500s and before. It kind of skips that 300-year period of where most of the stuff we think of as classic music actually comes from. You know, everything between Bach and, you know, Wagner, Mahler, the early 20th century guys, Reich is is disregarding all of that. Hmm. I mean, he actually said he didn't care for anything between Bach, and I think Schoenberg was a composer <laughs> that he used to book in that. Um, and w- when I met him, I remember him talking about being very interested in what a lot of the medieval and Renaissance composers did, because they would deal with long strings of notes that didn't line up and made these swirling sort of textures. <laughs> um, so there is a connection, but it's it's one or two degrees removed.
0: Well, Daniel, this has been absolutely fascinating. I feel like I learned something totally new from this lesson. I have not really appreciated this kind of music before, and I think I definitely have a newfound appreciation for it now that I I definitely see a tie with some of the music that I kind of like personally. Right, Being right. Being a much bigger pop fan, just sort of naturally. Totally. Than, than with classical. So, very cool. Thank you so much. Oh,
1: you're very welcome. Thanks for listening.
0: Thanks for listening to The Classical Classroom. We'll catch you next time.